it's there. Thank you. Sorry. I have to hit the God, otherwise I, I can't see you anymore. God is listening. Got it. Okay. Um, so we can't see God in nature, and we can't see him because of our sin, the sin that is now part of our nature. And no one has an excuse. So if, if someone hasn't heard, that's not an excuse. Because God can give in his sovereignty, can have people come to Christ, and come to the Jesus, anyway, anyway. I mean, he can just, you know, do all sorts of things. And in his sovereignty, he can do that. But normally, the way it is done is through Jesus Christ, his revelation, and, his under, and our understanding uh, of, of his drawing us to him. Um, now, notice... Pete, let me ask you. So, Pete. Yes, sir. So, yes, I, I understand that the eyes we have are attached to fallen men that can only see what fallen eyes can see. Right. And understand what fallen understanding can understand. But that being said, if... God chooses one of these people who've never heard about Jesus to impart spiritual eyes to them and impart spiritual knowledge of a savior, maybe not the savior. He has every right and he made it impossible that he can save people who've never heard about Jesus. Is that a her now, heretical? Now, no, it's not heretical because what was Abraham's family business? Anybody know? Family business. He was an idol maker. He was an idol maker, all right? And God counted, and, and that's what grace is all about. And God can distribute his grace in any way he so chooses. Even post-Calvary. Even post-Calvary. Post yes, but in normal action is through Christ and hearing his word, and that's our part. Now, there could be somebody, this guy in the middle of the jungle somewhere, God could impart grace to him and count his faith as righteousness. I mean, he certainly can. God can do what he darn well pleases. But that's not the normal route, and that's our position. Our, our, our place in this whole grand scheme, which I think is incredible if you think about it, is God has given us the word and has given us a part in, in salvation by being able to spread the word. Now, you know, our preaching, our teaching does not bring people to Christ. You know, I always hear this. I was brought to Christ under Billy. No. I had, I got the information that God used to bring me to himself through Billy Graham, whoever. God is the actor. We are, uh, we are not the actor. We are not the initiator of salvation. God. So, you know, we, our job is to spread the information is to say, this is what you've been looking at. This is what you've been thinking about. This is what is the real way to sell. Everybody okay with that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Not really. Fire, really. Firewood is on sale this time of year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Keep moving. All right. So, you know, what happens is that because, you know, this is sort of the cycle. Our sin nature does not allow us to see you know, God in, in nature and does not allow us to see unless he calls us. So we give ourselves over to things and giving ourselves over the things God lets us. You know, it has been said, someone said, I don't remember the exact, you know, it's one of those quotes that um, 
you know, I cycled around so many times, nobody said, nobody knows exactly who said it first, is that God gives us what we want, all right? If we want to be away from him, we don't want to have anything to do with him, he'll give us that. If we want to sin, he'll let us. Why? Because he allows us to run our freedom. So what happens is that because man has a natural tendency to, to worship the creation instead of the creator, we have been sent, given over, allowed to do what we please, and all these sins come in. Now, there's a big section on homosexuality here, but notice that, you know, there's that one paragraph on homosexuality, and then there's this paragraph with everything you can imagine, it, slandering, uh, envy, haters of God, the insolent, the hoardy, all that. These sins, there's no such thing, you know, some of us who have grown up in, in, the, in the Catholic tradition, there's a mortal sin, which is sort of a big bad sin, and there's a venial sin, which is sort of an, eh, you know, it's like a white lie and a lie. No, no, no. All sin is sin. And there's no sort of graduation of sin. Sin is sin. And, and the same sin, if you lie or if you take paper clips from the office, is the same as, you know, in God's eyes, is the same as drunkenness and sexual immorality. So there's, there's not such a thing as sin and sin. In our eyes, yeah, there's great graduation, but no. Okay. So... Basically, Paul is saying these things, you're without excuse. You should have known. Now, because of the original sin, our minds are changed. But we still should have known. We should have been able to come to God. But we can't, and we won't. So that boat's sinking. Um, and he says, uh, we're in chapter 2 now. Um, Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, which is first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, which is first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. All right. So he sort of put the Gentiles in this boat that, yeah, you don't have any excuses, and... Because of your nature, you're not getting there. So you're, you're both sinking. And he turns to the Jews and he says, okay, you know, those who sinned without the law will perish without the law. We're in 20 and 12. Those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Not the hearers of the law who are righteous before, before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. But when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a God to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, 
instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then teach others. Do you not teach yourselves? You preach against stealing. You steal. You say that one must not commit adultery. You commit adultery. You who abhor idols, you rob temples. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcised. The man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision. And he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. The Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. He is praised not from man, but from God. So now he's throwing the Jews into the same boat. Why? Why do I say that? What did you say? He's throwing the Jews into the same boat as the Gentiles that are drifting off into the, into the sunrise, the sunset of condemnation. That's a wonderful metaphor. Anyway, um, why do I say that? Oh, I like to hear myself talk. Maybe is it because we all sin? doesn't matter. Okay. Right. Right. You get an A. Yeah, and that, and you get an a. A. That's an A. That's an A. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, what, what, what Paul is going to get to eventually is that if you could keep the law totally, you'd be righteous. If you could keep the law totally and not make one mistake ever, you are righteous and therefore saved. Well, okay. but we can't. Very simple. Salvation is very simple. You keep the whole law, every bit of it, every second of every day. That's all. Nothing much. <laughs> what do you need to do? Somebody said something. And sound Peter, is here. We can keep the law. I'm sorry? Joy. Joy. Yes, you cannot. We cannot keep, can keep, can keep, can keep the law because there's no grace under the law. Mm -hmm. Right. Only yeah. Jesus can't keep the Ten Commandments, much less the whole law. Right. But, uh, right. All 613. Yeah. Uh, can I say something? Uh, no. There's a place where <laughs> it was a place where a very righteous man was. And he asked Jesus, he says, I have obeyed every single one of the laws, and therefore, how, how can I sin? And Jesus said, well, there's one sin you cannot avoid. And you need, it's, it's a sexual sin, a thought in your mind. Since you cannot avoid this, you cannot keep it. And, and I forgot where he said that. Well, the quote is actually to the rich young man that, you know, how do I, the rich young man says, how do I, how do I, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, follow the commandments, follow the law. And, and the man says, I, I, I've done that all my life. And Jesus says, great. The only thing you have to do is give away all your money and to the poor and follow me. But that's not the, that's not the uh, uh, chapter I was talking about. Okay. There's, there's a man who said. Yeah, you're thinking of. He's older and he said, you cannot avoid the sexual sin in your mind. 
therefore you still need forgiveness. He, I, I know he said that, but I can't remember where. Yeah, what he had said was that if you say, I think the quote is, you say you shall not commit adultery, but I say anyone who looks at a woman uh, with yeah. lust in their heart has committed adultery. Yeah. So, you know, the that, point is that, as Annette said, no <laughs> one can keep the law completely and perfectly. One person did. Yeah. And that fulfilled the law so that we no longer have to be as concerned about the law itself in terms of the jot and the tittle of the 613 commandments and statutes that are sitting in the law. Okay? Um, mm-hmm. By the way, that's the number, 613. Wow. Um, oh, crap. What's that? Amen. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can't. Yeah, how do you keep track of six hundred thirteen? I don't. Uh, I can, can't keep track of ten sometimes, but um, I can't keep track of where my kids are. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I just want to know if you're going to go to. I don't want you to pass over uh, verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine of chapter two. It's very revolutionary. Oh yeah, it's here. So, I don't know if you're getting there, but let me know if you get there. We're getting. Okay, very. Yeah, I, I, you know, what John is reporting is that he is, and again, you know, Paul has this tendency to ramble forward and then come back to something. And this is part of his moving forward, and, and he'll come back in chapter three. But it's pretty much the same thing. You know, Jews are, the Jews of the time had this sense of, I'm special. God came and revealed himself to me. And I have a circumcision, which is unusual in, in this time. Uh, in fact, at one point it was illegal, but and in fact, it, it was illegal in the Roman Empire to, quote, self-mutilate, which circumcision was generally classified as. So it's, they were sort of proud of themselves. We have God's word. We are, we are this. We are that. The circumcision is the mark of that. We are a special race picked out by God. And here is, is, God's, is Paul saying, you know what? If you're circumcised or not, it's not the outward sign of circumcision. It's the inward circumcision of the heart. Where the minor prophets, they talk about, I will give you a new covenant, and I will give you a new circumcision. I will circumcise your heart as a a sign of the covenant. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. And the Jews were very proud of this. And here... You know, they're talking in this community setting. They're saying, you know, we're, you're not circumcised, Gentiles. You know, we're special. That's our special mark. They may or may not have said you have to be circumcised to be a Christian, but that's not clear. But we have this special. We're special. And, and Paul's saying, uh-uh, you're not special. You're not special unless your heart serves. Not what you do, but how you think. Not what not oh, uh, and P, that's what a good and, and and that's interesting because that's what Jesus said. Well, yeah. it's not it's not about the external because you stand in the synagogue and you right. have your old disheveled and you're praying and but your heart is full of junk. So Paul is really just really repeating. It's more important what's on the inside than what's on the outside. Right. Your parents may look great, but it may be terrible. This change, this new life, isn't is as James says. It's a internal change that results in external action. It is not external action that results in internal change. You know, anybody, I'm not losing anybody with that one, right? 
there's one other piece I'd like to add to it, Peter, if I sure. could. I, the reason I love verse 29 is I see it as a bridging together of both Jew and Gentile. I see it as an invitation between Jew and Gentile, meaning whether you're Jew or Gentile, it really doesn't matter. You are truly a Jew, Absolutely. meaning one who is chosen belongs to God. If there's a circumcision of your heart that is that is brought on by the spirit, not in the letter, but whose praise is meant from God, this is an, I see this as a connection between the Gentile and the Jew to have the same criteria before God to be chosen by God. That's how it's and, and just as I said that Paul is putting the Jews and the Gentiles in the same boat in terms yeah. of need for salvation and need for Christ, but and the need for the new life. He's also rescuing them out of the water by saying, look, Jew and Gentile, as long as this attitude in your heart is correct, you're saved. Okay, so he's putting them in the same boat as the need and putting them in the lifeboat, if you would, to continue this crazy metaphor, uh, in the same lifeboat by saying it's all, it's not what you are externally. It's not if you're Jewish, if you're black, you're white, you're green, you're yellow, you're purple. It's what is in your heart that matters. Right. Okay? So that's the whole, I think, import of this. This is a very dense section. But I think I'm trying. I'm trying not to, you know, have the glazed look goes over people's faces or their <laughs> eyeballs cross because there's so much in here. So I'm just trying to, you know, and excuse me if it seems to be glossing the surface a little bit. But if I can just get the sort of the basics so that you look a little deeper, then I've, I've succeeded in what I wanted. Uh, Peter, just forgive me one more time if you don't mind. That I like verse 29 too because it links what what Annette was trying to say about the, the spirit. spirit bringing a person to salvation right Meaning to say that yeah to get back to your question you can you can see god through creation you can be drawn to god through creation but you can't become saved yeah. unless you have a, um, unless you have the spirit working within you and however god does that he does that but there is that element there i think that a person can come to a certain level of faith through creation but to get to saving faith Believing faith takes a work of the spirit, and I would contend the work of the gospel being shared, that, that's what I would contend to. But there's definitely, you can go to a certain point, but I don't know what, I think there has to be a work of the spirit. And what the spirit does in bringing the person to Christ is how they do that. But there's okay. definitely a work of the spirit. Right. I, I, I agree. I think the work, the work of, of Christ in this is the grace is what brings you to this point, what allows you to see. And then you are prepared to make that jump from seeing it, the grace having that you've seen it and understanding it, and then the leap into believing that Christ is Savior. That's yep. where we come in. Yep. Right? That's where we come in. You know, people just don't make... Um, decisions like this in a vacuum. I mean, this is a life-changing, you know, decision. And we don't make them in vacuums. We make them with information. You know, it's, you know, before you cross the street, you, you know, you look both ways, you make sure the light's right. You know, you make sure there's no car coming. You know, the, the curb is not 12 feet down. You're not stepping into a hole. You have this wealth of information that has to come to you before you can make a decision to cross the street. And our, our, because our place in God's scheme of things is giving all that information so that God can say and use his grace to say, this is what you need to believe. This is what I'm talking about. This is what all this is all about. 
Okay. And God grace. had the joy, the generosity to give us a part of, of his salvation plan by oh, being exposed. Oh, Peter. Yes, sir. As a, I'm looking for you on the great, great examples of someone who's seeing nature and wasn't saved was Albert Einstein, who mm. came to the logical conclusion mm. there must be a creator. It's the only thing that a way to explain the universe. Mm. And he came to that conclusion. Uh, the latest Nobel Prize winner of physics uh, thinks the same way, too, by the way. But it didn't save him, though. He didn't, no. It, because, it, it, no one knew more than he did. Because if, depending upon your perspective, uh, and it's either he did not receive the calling grace that pulled him toward, 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 toward uh, you know, to uh, take that next nope. step to Christ, nope. or that he whatever didn't have the grace to make the next step you know that he wasn't called but he didn't accept he, his old will said something so you know whatever way you do it that final that final step no matter what we do or what we say that final step is God. yeah right. Peter, without that final step yeah he might also been so he might have been so dependent upon his own intelligence yeah he, right. yeah he couldn't bend his knee to the creator yes so, that's yeah. right. Sometimes there's an overload of information and there's too much information and I don't want to know anymore. So, you know, there's also that kind of thing. Someone's asking a question. Yeah, I, I was not asking a question, but, um, you know, Steve gives out tracks. Mm -hmm. so those tracks are to sort of like fish you in. And, and, and when you read them, this is the way you become saved. But truthfully, if you just pick up that piece of paper, um, it has to be first brought in by the Holy Spirit and grace to be able to actually come to him because that piece of paper is just absolutely nothing. It's a lot of words unless there's something behind it. Am yeah. I, you, do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because people, when they pass them out, I think people think that as soon as you read it, okay, this is, uh, this is the, the, uh, this is the solution, or this is the equation. I do this, I do this, I do this, and wow, I'm saved. But it I'm had going to, forward. Yeah, you know, but it had to be God in the first place to bring you to that point. I had a, a friend whose uh, mother-in-law, you know, would say to him, and I'm, you know, pray for him and said, I pray that you be more saved. And it's like, what? What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> and the whole denomination was more saved. But, you know, it's, it's you're saved or you're not. And the information is what your mind needs to, to understand salvation. And yes. Wow, yes. God working. Yes. All right. right. All right. Anything else before I move on to chapter three as I try to gloss over the really difficult chapters? <laughs> well, you we can spend a year on two, so. You can spend it. You can. Uh, I will tell this story again, because some of you have heard of John Piper. Uh, who some of you may have heard about, a great preacher, uh, preached five and a half years on Romans. Oh, wow. Every wow. Sunday was Roman. Wow. Five and a half years. Yeah. And his church, God bless them, stood up against this. And like the, the second to the last week, he said, I, you know, next week I'm going to give a little summary and we're done with, uh, with, with Romans and we're going to go on to whatever he was going to go on. So the next week, unbeknownst to him, uh, they got a little plan together. So he finished his last sermon on Romans. 
and he said, you know, gave the, you know, sort of a benediction. And the choir got up and sang the Hallelujah chorus. <laughs> so, you know, and if, if you ever read, uh, have you ever seen, um, um, I think it's uh, uh, the commentary on um, Romans by, uh, Lloyd Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones. It is a commentary on Romans that is, it is, is, it's, I mean, I've seen Bibles that are smaller. I mean, you know, it's a commentary, but it has more words in it than Romans does. And it's just, this is an amazing book. It has, you know, even um, John Calvin's uh, commentary on Romans runs about three or four hundred pages. So it is, it is a book that has brought a lot of minds and brought them into an understanding of, of struggling with this word. It's, very, it's not easy. And I'm no way I'm going to do this in a Sunday school class, get you know, deep down into the depths of Romans. I just want to give you a taste. Okay. Peter, you probably brought this up last two weeks ago when I wasn't here, but in seminary, it's been taught to us, taught to me many times that, that Romans is the gospel masterpiece in the Bible. And, and Paul intended it and God intended it that way because all roads led to Rome. So from the Roman church and from the Roman letter, this gospel was spread throughout the whole entire known world. So it's it's the consent masterpiece of the gospel is Romans. But at the same time, there are people now, there's this new um, uh, new aspect of looking at, at Paul that people like and he write uh, take, where it is really a letter that is based upon community and problems within communities. He looked at all the epistles and said, all these are based on situations within communities. Romans should be no different. And there are some help. There is some things with that because this is a, this is a group. A lot of the explanations of this tension between Gentiles and Jews, Christians within the Roman uh, church are, are the background. And what Paul does is take this tension and tries to solve the tension by bringing in his theology. He's brought, he said, look, we're all in the same boat. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. You're in the same boat. You still need the grace of God to be saved. Mm -hmm. you, you need to follow the law perfectly to be saved. But nobody can do that. So what happens? We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same lifeboat. When the Titanic is sinking, we're all in the same lifeboat. So let's get together and do this. But he uses his theology uh, which is what N.T. Wright doesn't bring into it. New perspective on Paul is what they call it. Uh, N.T. Wright and his uh, ilk did not bring in uh, and forget about the theology, whereas the other ones forget about the community aspect and bring in only theology. So this book, it's not, it's not something um, that is uh, clear-cut. There are two things going on here, and he, Paul likes to use theology to bring things in. Now, he doesn't answer a lot of questions. So this is not a system, you know, some people have said this is a systemic theology. It isn't. Systematic theology. It's systematic theology. It is not. There are a lot of pieces that are missing. But what he is doing is bringing those parts of his theology in that will help his community become one in Christ. All right. In chapter three, Paul uses a rhetorical te technique that's been around for centuries by the time he, he's living. Uh, Cicero, you know, I, when I was in high school, I studied Cicero for more than I ever want to think about Cicero, uh, who was the expert uh, in rhetoric. And his outline of how to give a speech, how to, how to talk, how to convince people was used centuries and still is 
in public speaking classes. We don't give Cicero credit in public speaking, but many times it is his principle. And one of the principles was to set up a conversation, a question and answer period. You ask a question as, as if you're I'm asking John a question, and I answer the question. Okay, so I'm saying, you know, I'm saying, uh, Peter, uh, is the sky blue? Yes, I think the sky is blue. Okay, you know, what do you mean that you think it's green? No, I think it's blue. You know, and so you're answering, you're ask, asking a question and answering it as if you're having this conversation. It's a rhetorical technique, and it's used very commonly. And Paul uses this in the first part of chapter three. And there's the first question is in verse one. Okay. So why bother? What was this whole thing about the circumcision and the Old Testament? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Was there any yeah. uh, is there any value in circumcision? You know, what the heck? Is, you know, you just said you know it doesn't matter. So all this time, this last several thousand years, where God is is working through the Jews and circumcision doesn't mean anything. Is that what you're saying? And then Paul answers it, and he says, "No, it's not true. There is a value in being a Jew." And what does he say? Much in every way. What was that, John? What was that, John? It says much in every way. That yes, there's great value in it. Yeah. There's right. great value. Um, and what is that value? They were entrusted with the very words of God. Yeah. Right. Right. The very, words of God. very good, Bonnie. They were entrusted in keeping God's word with humanity forever. It was their job. They were the trustees. God gave these words so that people would eventually be able to see Christ in them. And he gave them as a treasure. And the Jews kept it for all these years. You know, there is a whole school in, in biblical uh, criticism that, you know, has drifted, has changed in time. And that has had, that was dealt a real nasty blow when the Dead Sea Scrolls came out. Because uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls come from a couple hundred to 300 years before the time of Christ. And yet Isaiah that they have and the Isaiah we have differs maybe in a four or five words, which you could argue may or may not actually differences, but differences in the way we've looked at the ancient Hebrew. So they preserved it. They carefully kept the word. They were incredibly diligent about passing the word on generation to generation to generation. And that was what was the big thing. That's what's there. That is to their honor. That is always to their glory. They kept the word of God. Okay? Just because they blew it most of the time <laughs> doesn't mean anything. They kept the word of God. They kept it safe. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> See? It says, okay, verse 3a, it says, well, you know, you're right, but the words of God have failed because so many Jew and Gentile haven't even believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in God's Son. So what happened to all those promises in the Old Testament? You know, there's all these wonderful promises. There's all these wonderful words in the Old Testament. But nobody really, you know, no one's accepting them. You know, Christianity is a very small religion, has very few believers in, in terms of percentages. It's less than 1% of the empire. Uh, you know, does that mean we fail? Yeah, at this time, it means we fail. Yeah, we fail. Is that what that means? All right, that's his next question. That's in verse the first part of verse three. 
right? It says, what, what if someone faithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And the answer is, by no means. God is true, though everyone were a liar. It is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Okay. So, what he's saying, what is he saying there? Yeah. They were failures in terms of following the law. They were failures. They were unrighteous. But what, what, why is that make God's faithfulness? Because he's true. And right. everything he says is true. And he sticks with his word. We're the ones who, but he's there for us. So to understand that. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Bonnie. Um, those of you who have children. What does it say about you that you, I mean, you know, there's, what does it say about you that you haven't murdered your children or thrown them out of the house or, uh, you know, what does it say about you? <laughs> I mean, you know, I hit, it, I hit, a, I hit a, a chord that has struck everybody. We have a lot of patience. What does it say about you? I mean, your kids were so perfect. No, we have a lot of patience. Oh. Yes. That's it. Yes. Jesus, a lot of Jesus Lord over my house, because if he was it, there'd be a different story entirely out there right now. <laughs> oh, patience. Unconditional love. Unconditional love and faithfulness. You know, this, this whole idea that the, the scriptures are promises of God, and he is faithful to those promises, no matter what we do. We cannot nullify or make void the promises of God, no matter what we do. Because he's still making those promises. There's no one, well, there's never no one, even in times of Elijah, when he thought that he was alone. There were 3,000. To the credit he put aside. But even if Elijah were alone, it doesn't matter. He is still faithful to those promises. Mm -hmm. And that makes God, that actually focuses our attention on God and says, wow, this whole history of the Old Testament, this whole history of Israel, Despite their unfaithfulness, have kept, God has kept his promises. He has brought Christ to us. He has kept that promise perfectly in Christ. And what a wonderful thing that is. See how faithful, how loving, how constant God is. How unchangeable he is. Okay. All right. All right. Next question in verse 5. Well, this unrighteousness shows God's righteousness. Our unfaithfulness shows God's faithfulness. So why, why does he judge us? Why does he judge those who are unrighteous and unfaithfulness? Because after all, his righteousness is shown by un in our unrighteousness, and his faithfulness is shown in our unfaithfulness, and God is getting glory in this, so why are we judged? Judgment is there because he cares about us All right. and wants us to turn back. Yeah. All right. Uh, Peter, as a bad student, I drifted there. I totally missed what you were trying to ask. I, I'm sorry about that. Well, the I, question is if God, <laughs> is, if our unfaithfulness and right. our unrighteousness show God's faithfulness and show God's righteousness, why are we condemned for our unrighteousness and our unfaithfulness? Hey, because we've been unrighteous from the beginning. 
And God has always been righteous and his righteousness can lead us to that. Right. If, we, if, if he gives us the opportunities to become righteous, but now through him. Paul answers this question. Yeah, okay, Bonnie. But Paul answers the question in a couple of ways. The first one is he answers this question about if the unrighteousness is needed for God's righteousness to be shown, how is it fair to, for him to judge us? Uh, on, in verse 6, he says, well, if we thought that, God couldn't judge anyone, and we all agree God judges. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, you believe, you know, you're going to believe that God judges bad things. And if he, it, the basis of his ability to judge is his righteousness and faithfulness, not our unrighteousness and our unrighteousness. Yes. And then the last one is, if sinning makes God look better, says, um, if, if through my lie, God, this is verse 7, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that God may come? <laughs> well, I mean, this was, now, think about this. Here's a guy who's running around the Mediterranean saying, the Lord is gone. You're not under the Lord anymore. Take that as many, you know, as people tend to do. Uh, just read, just watch the internet. Uh, if that was on the internet, we don't have any, we are no longer under the law. People would just do what they want to do. Oh, we're not under the law. So we can do what we want to do. All right. And people had said that about Paul. And he says that, whoa, whoa, you know, whoa, whoa. They, yeah, I, 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 you know, people have said this about me, but that's not what I'm saying. That is not what I am saying. And this whole attitude that we don't have the law is, is condemned. Yeah. It's, it's utterly, absolutely wrong. It's not that, and he will go into what he's talking about, but it's, we're not under the law in the sense that we no longer have the law as our, uh, as our uh, standard for what is righteousness. Right. We no longer have that. But he's not saying that we don't, you know, we don't have to follow the moral standards of the law that are written on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. Uh, you know, it's, you know, I've had this argument, you know, people will say that only parts of the law, you know, we're still under the, you know, the moral portions of the law and whatnot. No, this, the law that's on the stone, those commandments are no longer, we are no longer subject to them. Though the law that is in our hearts when we come to Christ, which contains that and more, as the Sermon on the Mount talks about, uh, that's what we're judged. That's what is important. That's what we need. That's our standard of, of, of morality. Amen. That's our standard of action. Even more. It's even more than ten minutes. That's right. It's that whole that whole thing about you know I look at somebody or gee you know you have that's a nice shirt. I really would like that shirt while I'm, you know, thinking about stealing it from you. And, you know, therefore I have committed the sin of stealing. You know, that, that kind of, um, you know, the, the law that's written on our hearts is much stricter and much more precise than the law that's written on the Ten Commandments. You know, because I can go out and never steal anything. But if I envy somebody over what they have, if I feel like I would love to have that, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about, man, you know, I can wheedle that out of it. That kind of thing, you know, that's actually condemned under the law in our hearts. But the law outside in the stone is no longer required. So, in any case, 
he is not saying that the law is completely gone. What he is saying is that it's, it's now inner attitude. Um, and he upholds the law. Now, okay, we have eight minutes left. Am I, oh, I have three minutes left. Okay. We'll give an We'll give an extension. Finish up what you got to finish up. Come on. Well, now he has a last question. Are the Jews better off? In other words, the Jews at this time in Rome are saying, we're better than you because we have law, we have this, we have that. He says, no. This is verse 9. No. All are under sin. As it is written, no one is right. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to disease, to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. For there is no fear of God for their arms. I have a whole bunch of other stuff on this and we'll go next week. But first, the whole conclusion of, verse, of verses 9 and 10 is that, you know what? You're in the same boat. Nobody's righteous. Jew, Gentile, pagan, whatever you are, we're all in the same boat. Without Christ, we're all in the same boat. We don't have any righteousness. We can't be righteous because we always do something. We slander. We sin some way. Um, um, now, righteousness is a uh, is a positional term. It means how we stand before God. Whereas, you know, under sin, you know, we talked about we are all under sin is a legal term. And under sin means being a citizen of a kingdom. That Greek term means uh, you're a citizen of that kingdom. So if you're under sin, you're a citizen of the kingdom of sin. So he's saying, look, we're in trouble here. Nobody's righteous. Everybody's sin. Everybody, in fact, is a citizen of this kingdom that we call sin. Some, in other places, we call we're a slave to sin. So we're in deep, deep trouble here. So the law is not sort of a checklist. The law is a standard. It's a. It's what's called a uh, canon. The ruler. Uh, canon was uh, was a Latin term. They put this stick down next to the wall to make sure it was straight. Well, the canon is, is you know is, is our measuring stick. We stand next to the law and see where we are. We're all, everybody is sort of over here somewhere, and no one is running against us. So we are. There is none righteous. So and we can't be righteous because we cannot follow the law. That's the whole point of this section. And this is an important section. And, you know, it's even important in May Campus Crusades for spiritual lawless, okay? No one is righteous. No one. Everybody is sin. Anyone who says, we had a guy in church, you know, not this church, but church we went to, said, I haven't sinned since I became a Christian. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, and he actually believed that. He was a... Uh, 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 a perfectionist, you know, Christian perfectionist, which is a bend in Wesleyan theology, which is a little weird, but in uh, with that, I haven't sinned. 
I don't see anyone. Well, that's not true. Even wow. after you're saved. So in and of ourselves, none of us is righteous. Now, God may not see our sins after we are saved, but we still sin. And before that, all those sins count against us in the sense that we are remained as unrighteous. And no one is out of that boat. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, pagan, Greek, Roman, you know, the Midian, you know, the African, all of these people are unrighteous. Peter? Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, it's funny. I have, whenever I would hear a sermon, um, I would always write down the note of who said it and what it was, what was said. And so here's Pastor Bob's take on that uh, back in April 14. <laughs> so it's a long time ago. And so I underlined, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, <laughs> no one who seeks God. And so what he said was uh, at that time, not on our power, but by God's grace, are we saved. That's it. Right. right. And Paul gets to this uh, in his usual straightforward uh, manner with few, as few words as possible. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Paul tends to you know, wander a little bit here and there. But uh, uh, that's one of the reasons I love Paul, because Paul, in a lot of ways, he thinks is very similar to what I think. I will start something. Talk, and talk about something and something will pop into my head and I'll just go off on that tangent and <laughs> it takes me about 10 minutes to get back to the right road. So, you know, he does get to this and we will talk about this. Uh, yes. I just want to add one thing if I could, that the, the great thing about these three questions, right, that, that we're dealing with that Paul is in his rhetoric he's doing here and what he's saying about the very end, like he said, that they're all in the same boat. But he answers the question with scripture primar primarily. Right. Yeah. Right. Even though they're no, he's focusing the Gentile and the Jew, he's using scripture to give the answer, to identify that we're all in the same boat. So he's mm. using scripture, just like Jesus was prosed with three questions and he answered them with scripture. So the, the emphasis is that God's word is the, is the power and the answer to the question. Right. And last thing I want to say, just quick, and I'll let you, let you add to what I'm saying, but verse 20 is very powerful in a theological standpoint to know that for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So one of the purposes, the primary purpose of God giving the law was to demonstrate his holiness and to identify for us, the believer, the New Testament believer, what sin is. Right. Without the law, we would not know what sin, what sin is. That's, that's what I'm trying to, trying to say. It's a standard. It's, yeah. it's what we check ourselves with, and we realize how divergent we are going. Now, right. next week, because I think these verses are very important, we'll pick up in 3.9. Uh, well, because I think these verses are very important and are worth going over again. Okay. okay. Very good. We'll start with 3.9 so, um, as, our, as our starting point. Yes. Mm -hmm. Good job, Pete. I agree with about 99% of what you said, so good job. Well, I have to change it then, John. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank uh, you. I'm trying desperately, John, to run that middle course and not get too crazy. Uh, uh, we sense the desperation, Pete. We hear the desperation of you trying to do that. And you're, you're doing, you're accomplishing it, I would say. Yeah, you're doing a good job. Uh, what John was talking about is the difference between a systemic, a systemic, systematic theology 
and a biblical theology. Uh, a there are a lot of systematic theologies out there. There weren't that many biblical theologies that are based upon scripture. Uh, and that, I think, is a big, big difference. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the primary biblical theology that I've read is, is you know, first one written, I, I can tell, is Calvin. But there are, you know, but you can read Gruden and all these other newer theologians that come around. Uh, are, they're systematic in the sense that they lay it out but they don't really refer back to scripture as often as they should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, All right. You There's more. I'm sorry. You end this in prayer? Oh, yes, I'd, I'd love to. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. Oh, Father, what a treasure that is. We just pray, Lord, that these powerful theological and um, uh, precepts that we learn, Lord, would would inform us, but would transform us, Lord, as we learn about how the law really, no one can keep the law and how we would be condemned on even on our own deeds. We all the more cling to the Lord Jesus. We all the more love what he's done on our behalf uh, at the cross. So thank you for that, Father, and use these to change our hearts. Thank you for Dr. Pete, and thank you, Lord, as he brings uh, your word and your precepts. Now, Lord, we just bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.